Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. You know, the gospel accounts only give us a little bit of insight and information about Jesus' upbringing. Uh, Matthew devotes just two chapters to his birth in infancy. And then we fast forward uh, almost immediately to his public ministry 30 years later, even starting next uh, chapter. It's very clear that the gospel writers, especially Matthew, probably Matthew more than the other three, wants us to have a sense of the tension that was created by Jesus' coming. Um, His uh, coming into the kingdom of this world, you might say, that was in such disarray, raging against God. Uh, That's the natural state of things. But the king of heaven now coming, that's going to create some conflict for sure. And that is really typified from the beginning. I mean, as soon as he's born, we have this occasion where Herod, um, acting as a figurehead of the world, if you will, or of Satan's kingdom, trying to destroy, in a shocking way, destroy the Christ when he discovers that he's been born in Bethlehem. So many missed what was right before them. Instead of seeing the birth of Christ as an answer to their most desperate problem, Many saw him as a threat to their way of life, their status, their power, their, their comfortable situation. So it's important for us to be reacquainted with the reality of the hatred that existed for Jesus and exists for him today still, and exists for those who are in union with him, his people. Jesus warns us this will be the case, and we could see from the beginning of his life, um, he experienced just this. So here as I read God's holy word, This is Matthew 2. I'll start at verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Bow together as I lead us in prayer. O oh Lord, uh, the reaction 
of Herod and his minions is so violent and extreme against our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to gather why this is so. Help us to recognize the cosmic clash that reached such a fever pitch when Jesus came. Help us to see how the animosity displayed towards Jesus still remains to this day. But Lord, encourage us by your clear hand of providence and protection that guarantees the fulfillment of your plan, of your will, your work of salvation for your people. Pray for your Spirit's illumination today as we look at your word. I pray this through Christ. Amen. What we witness in this passage, this extreme episode as we see it, it's what I like to refer to as a redemptive hotspot in the Bible. God's plan for redemption is revealed very early in the Bible. In Genesis 3, right when sin occurs, God's response in time and space is to promise a seed from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That sets up a conflict that is thematic throughout the Bible. It's one of the best ways to understand what's happening in the Bible is this clash between the two seeds. The seed of Satan, the seed of the woman will be the Messiah. And God's provision for the seed of the woman to protect it and to preserve it despite the constant attacks from the seed of the serpent. It's a redemptive hot spot because here now Jesus intrudes into the kingdom of man as the king of kings and now Satan and his minions are, are, are raised to attention now that this has begun. This fulfillment from so long ago was starting to happen. There are several of these kinds of hot spots in the Bible. Um, you think back to Noah when God uh, called Noah out of the people of the earth to save a people and preserve the seed. Uh, there's this clear intervention of God into time and space in this way. Several other occasions, like when Abraham is called and God's provision and protection of him. And then later, similarly to the patriarchs. Then his calling of Moses, a, a redemptive hotspot, when he intervenes, calls up Moses after 400 years of slavery to raise him up and lead the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land. Then, of course, the victories in Canaan that were nothing less than a miracle that God granted. The appointment of judges over Israel when all the other kingdoms of earth, of earth had kings. But then anointing a king who would forecast an ultimate king. These are redemptive hotspots or interventions that stand out to us when we read the Bible as something really stirring and happening, moving towards the end that God has appointed. Here we have one of the biggest in the Bible to this point. The actual coming now, the seed from the woman, the Messiah, the anointed one. And this would alert all of Satan's kingdom for sure. And Satan had his hand upon the kingdom of this earth, no question. And Herod represents the kingdom of this earth in that respect. We see it unfold from this point with immediate opposition to Christ. And that's an awareness we all should have, that this opposition that we experience as believers today who are loyal to Christ, um, what we experience was started with our master. We're the servants, and we're not better than our master. So we should expect much of the same. Now, we have the benefit of knowing where God is going with this. It gives us great courage. It emboldens us. It helps us endure. But we should be clear. There is a reality that people hate Christ. There are people who hate Christ and those who say they are loyal to him, that he is their savior, he is their king. They're going to oppose us. That's still going to happen this day and in this time. 
I like what J.C. Ryle says. The rulers of this world are seldom friendly to the cause of God. Now, we shouldn't fret that because God's cause doesn't need the rulers of this world. Very few are those wise rulers in history who gave proper attention to the lordship of Christ. Most of the time, you see a lust for power, confusion about this world, gripping the hearts of people, especially people in authority, and they go the opposite direction of what God would call them to and actually oppose God in their doing. People who are in love with this fading world are seldom friendly to the cause of God, especially those who have a lot to lose by way of power and influence. Not just leaders, but people in general who are confused about the nature of this world are seldom friendly to the eternal cause of God. They're stuck in the here and the now and they think this is all there is. The conflict between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God flares mightily in this instance as the Messiah has come. Such flare-ups we should expect until the kingdom of this world finally becomes the kingdom of his Christ. Now, in the meantime, as we live in this place, between his advents, you might say, we should not be surprised by the very real existence of hatred towards Christ and his church. I chose for a thought to begin the lines from the hymn, you can see them on the insert that Samuel Stone wrote and that we'll sing later, The Church's One Foundation. The fourth verse of that hymn really captures the sentiment. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend. To guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. It's the promise of God that we remember while at the same time being realistic and being honest about the fact that Christians will face opposition. And it starts with our Lord. And it started immediately, right in the beginning of his life on earth. Let's go to the passage and see how God warns Joseph about this opposition that was heading his way. And God gives us general warning. We should know this will be coming. But this is stark what happens early on. Verse 13. The wise men had departed. Then the angel of the Lord, which become a way of revealing himself to Joseph and Mary especially. But Joseph, this is, what he, this is how he had known what God's will would be. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. That'd be shocking enough to have this revelation given to you. What's the reason? For Herod, the king, the king of this whole land, is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, how personal would this be? Joseph's just a nobody. They're in a nobody town. Why would the king of Israel care so much about Jesus being born? Such extreme violence is being prophesied here by the angel if he doesn't get out of here. Get out and get out fast and get a long ways from here. This is very serious. So God is very plain from the get-go with Joseph about the level of hatred that can be conjured for Christ. And Herod embodies this. So it says in verse 14, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He heeded the warning of God. He recognized what he had been commanded to do. And he remained there until Herod died. We don't know how long this could have been, a year, a couple years. We're not positive on the dates. We know that Herod died in 4 BC. So probably a year or two he could have been there. Maybe it was just months. Whatever the case, he does what was told of him. Now, I want you to notice something here that Matthew does because he'll do this throughout the gospel. He'll 
refer to Old Testament prophecies and passages and allusions. Um, they're not always straight quotes. Sometimes they're even just a teaching that the prophets were, were promulgating in the times of the prophets. And here he quotes from Hosea 11 very directly. He says that this fleeing to Egypt was in order to fulfill Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, interestingly, Hosea 11 was originally, when it was first given, referring to God calling Israel out of Egypt. He called Israel his son. We'll see many parallels between how Israel, the nation, then becomes personified in the person of Christ, at least the way God dealt with them. That's the case here. So Matthew's use of this passage will give us some insight on his view of Christ. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. The reason why he uses so many Old Testament proof texts is to convince the reader Jesus is the historical Messiah. Uh, Make no mistake, he is the one who has been forecasted. It's all over the pages of the Old Testament, and I'll show you every place where this is true. The Old Testament contains many prophecies and foreshadowings. This is just the first of three mentioned in this passage. They departed, verse 14 again, to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt I called my son. I just mentioned that Israel becomes sort of a type of Jesus in some sense. It's interesting that as providence would have it, I'm teaching, studying, and teaching Exodus, the book of Exodus Sunday nights, every other Sunday night or so, started last week. There's a very definite parallel between what happened with Israel in Egypt and what's going on here with Jesus. And I think Matthew knows that the Jewish reader, especially from the onset, would, would, would see this. Israel, if you remember, was called to Egypt or brought to Egypt. Remember Goshen? Where they were formed and readied for the mission to the promised land. Jesus was called to Egypt out of the promised land for a time to be preserved and readied for his mission not just to Israel, but to the world. But symbolically, he would go out of Egypt back back to Israel. Israel was in slavery in Egypt, so God raised a deliverer, Moses. The world, in sin and slavery to sin, so God raises the deliverer, Jesus himself. Moses delivered Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. Jesus would, as the greater Moses, deliver people from slavery to sin and Satan. This is symbolic of all of what will happen in his ministry. Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. This would have been a good, safe place to go. Um, Where they were was not safe any longer, but when they went down to Egypt, even though it's a couple-week journey, there were many, many thousands of Jews who still live there. Uh, In Alexandria alone, there was over 100,000 Jews who settled there at the time of the first century. So they would have found family, they would have found work, it would have been a place they could have stayed, and it was out of the grip or the jurisdiction of Herod. But boy, this is not a welcome, a warm welcome for the Savior of the world. Before he's a toddler, already having to flee, already experiencing um, the oppressions and the afflictions of a people who are rejecting him. It comports with the Bible's description of the humble Jesus Christ. The world didn't recognize him on the whole. But these hardships, these trials, even starting now, were all part of what God was doing to prepare Jesus for his public ministry, to do his work of passion on behalf of his people. In Hebrews 5, the author says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience, Jesus, 
through what he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It was part of God's trek for God the Son to go through this process towards the end that he would eventually realize suffering on the cross to save us. These sufferings give him empathy for us. He can relate with us in all ways. Now, sometimes the enemies of Christ hide themselves and they nip at the heels of the church. Other times, like here with Herod, the enemies of Christ are not subtle at all. His lust for his own power and status overtakes him in the paranoia that makes him fear the idea of a king who would usurp him, drives him to the worst and awful end. If you look at verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, they didn't come back. They weren't coming back to tell him that they'd found Christ. He became enraged, furious. And what does he do? He reacts by sending and killing, sending people to go and kill all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old or less, according to the time that he had figured out from the wise men. He didn't know exactly how old the baby would be, but if he killed all those two and under, he would surely capture the Christ. It's providential also that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, designated as a national thing to remember by Reagan back in in the 1980s, that this third Sunday in January would be a time for all of us to appreciate the sanctity of life, people made in the image of God. It's also meant to remind us of how far we've fallen away from what God has called us to and the awfulness of abortion that plagues this land. On this day, we see this, and we're shocked by it to some degree. We should be shocked by the killing of babies. Absolutely we should be. Now, to give some scope to this, this is Bethlehem. So we would imagine, we know that Bethlehem had a population of anywhere from 300 to 1,000 people tops. So this means if you take all those who are two years old or younger and are males, estimates would say somewhere around 15 to 20 babies were slaughtered as a result of this decree. Now, some have said, critics of course, well, this isn't mentioned in the annals of Herod. Why, how do we to know this is the case? Well, good reason for this. This is a vicious king with a track record that way outdoes even as awful an atrocity as this, this is. This wouldn't even get in his top ten. Um, this is a Herod who killed three of his own sons, killed one of his wives. He actually, several times when there were insurrections, would massacre the people that were part of it, even Jewish people, his own people. didn't matter who they were. Uh, it was said that at the end of his life, he had arranged to have everyone in his court killed when he died. Uh, that didn't fully come to pass, but this is the person we're talking about. This wouldn't, as awful as this is, wouldn't have made his annals the same way you might imagine. And then the verse that's captured by Matthew to give us a sense of the lament of the awfulness of the reaction comes from an episode that occurred in Jeremiah's time, now applied here in fulfillment. It says in verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for children. Rachel being um, symbolic of all of Israel, the mothers of Israel. Rachel, that favored wife of Jacob, the wife of the chosen seed. And she lamented in the time of Jeremiah when the Babylonians were ransacking Jerusalem and taking Israel captive to their land and killing many as they went. 
and there was great weeping in the land as a result of that. Matthew takes this episode and lets us know that episode was a forecast of what you see now happening in Bethlehem. Rachel weeping for her children, and she could not be comforted. There's no way she could be comforted by this. Nothing you could say to her would make her feel better because her children were no more. That's how awful this was. And this is all because of a massive cosmic conflict that's spiritual in nature but manifests itself into the physical world. I alluded to it earlier, but I want to mention it again because I think we can lack the spiritual eyes necessary to recognize the world around us sometimes. And what we have in our world today, in the strife and the strivings and the difficulties, especially that which comes against the church, this comes from that conflict between the two seeds. I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, The NASB says, I will make enemies of you and the woman, talking to Satan and the woman, and your offspring and her descendant, singular. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You'll be nipping at him, and you'll be hurting him. At the cross, you'll bruise his heel, but his heel will come down and crush your head. But that whole process is a fight to the cross. And then after the cross, it's not that Satan goes away. He's still flailing away. They may be death pangs, but they're still damaging and dangerous. There's an establishment of this disorder in the world from Genesis 3. We look forward to the final victory by Christ, but the devil will fight to the end. One commentator talking about this conflict that's revealed in Genesis 3.15 and then realized by what we see happening here. He said, here is the key to understanding not only the book of Genesis, not only the whole Bible, but also every bit of the strife that you experience as a Christian or against Christians. In verse 15, God says he will put enmity where there wasn't any between the serpent and the woman, and that's going to cause an effect. Jesus warns us many times in his earthly ministry of this. And I mention it now because it helps us appreciate what he endured from the beginning. In John 15, for instance, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, I don't know what that makes you feel like at times. Sometimes when I read it, I'm convicted about how easy my life has basically been even being a Christian. But I read enough and know enough about church history that this is not the normal instance or the normal experience that Christians have the world over. In most cases, you have to pay dearly for claiming Christ. Not always with your life, but sometimes with your livelihood, socially, all sorts of other things. We've been so comfortable that I think we sometimes, when a pastor starts talking like, Christians, you better be ready for opposition. You're like, oh, come on, we can get along here. And that's kind of the problem. We've been getting along here. I'm not sure how well it will go for the church wider if we don't start to appreciate that the norm will be to pay a penalty, a a price, for claiming the name of Christ. I think that could be coming. That is something that our Christian friends the world over have discovered already and are living out. Persecution, that's part of what actually happens to the followers of Christ at some point. And I sometimes wonder... If we haven't experienced that or we're not garnering some opposition, maybe we're not really obviously the people of God at times. Maybe that could be the case. Certainly something for us to contemplate, to consider, and ask God to help us see clearly about our witness and the strength of it, knowing the third point is true, that he'll provide us protection. He's given us warning to know this is coming, 
He provides for protection, though, to see his plan through, that he won't leave us or forsake us, that he'll use those things to actually build us up and build us out. We see it even happen early on now in the life of Christ as Herod dies and they can return to Israel. But we see the protection of God and the wisdom of God supernaturally necessary. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. We don't know the time span, months, maybe a year, maybe two. But notice the quote or the statement. When Herod died. And brothers and sisters, the enemies of God always die. That is what will happen. It's like Ryle said. He's so strong on this point, J.C. Ryle. The murderer of the helpless infants must himself die. The triumph of the wicked is short, Ryle reminds us. You know, all that these people were trying to protect is such a short-lived period of time. What they were protecting is really going to become rubble. The Lord lives forever. His enemies are only men, after all, in this sense. I like what Ryle said. It's just the wording he uses I can't beat, so I won't even paraphrase. He said, they did all they could to destroy the, church, the truth. But the truth rose again from the earth and still lives. And they are dead and moldering in the grave. Death is definitely the mighty lever, leveler. And we find it back to verse 19. Herod died. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. So go back now. And those, those who sought the child, they are now dead. Of course, Joseph obeys. It says in verse 21, he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now, as he's going back, would you not be nervous after all that's happened? He's nervous for good reason. So when he hears that Herod's son is now in charge and he's not any better, he's concerned. It says that in verse 22, He's going to go back to the district or the state of Judea where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are. But the son is there. How is this going to be better? He was starting to have anxiety about this. And he then was warned in a dream, hey, don't go to that particular state of Judea. Go to Galilee instead. That's a little further south. A different son of Herod was over that region. It'd be safer there. So yes, the opposition comes, but you don't have to run headlong into death either. And so Joseph here, by God's wisdom, settles in Galilee, in the outskirts of Galilee, no less, in a town, a know-nothing town of Nazareth. It says in verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is another allusion that Matthew makes. But here's the thing. It's not an allusion to something we have in the Old Testament. It's an allusion to whatever the prophets of Israel had been forecasting. Not everything the prophets said made it into an Old Testament book. And the only thing we know of what the prophets said that didn't make it into an Old Testament book comes from a New Testament apostle or prophet. So that's how we know that it had been forecasted that the Christ would be called a Nazarene. He would be on the outskirts. It fits with the overall description of Jesus of being someone uh, that people didn't pay much attention to. He wasn't noticeable. Now, I want to say one other thing about prophecy, since this is the third one. Sometimes, if you're like me, when we're in the Advent season and I hear some of the prophecies read, especially the ones we do at the Advent candle, we're all like, so obvious. I mean, it's going to be born a virgin, born in Bethlehem. 
the Prince of Peace? How come these people, when Jesus was born, did not see it? How did they miss it? it on a, you don't have to raise your hand, but do you ever think that sometimes? Well, the best way to describe it comes from an illustration I got from somebody else. But it's really helpful because in our house, we like to do puzzles, my daughter especially. And during COVID, during the lockdowns and such, I couldn't find any puzzles on the shelf, so I ordered a few. And they come to me in a baggie. And I think it had a picture of it in it, but I lost it immediately. And so I'm all excited to show my daughter we got these puzzles. We put them out. We're like, she's like, well, Daddy, what is it? I'm looking at all the pieces. I'm like, I'm looking around. I don't know where the, there's no box top to tell you what it's going to look like. You know, that's how you do a puzzle. You have the box top up and you do the puzzle. Okay, well, when you were living in the Old Testament times in the first century, um, you had all these pieces before you that I could find the edge. That's what I did right away, right? I did the edge. And I started to work, and it, it would take forever to do this thing, not knowing what the picture is. And so to some degree, our forerunners, they had the scriptures, but it wasn't altogether clear to them what picture was making up. And when the apostles come and the New Testament comes, those inspired authors are able to show you the cover of the box. This is what these pieces have led to so that the scripture would be fulfilled, you'll hear the author say many times. And if you were a Jew in that time, a believing Jew, you'd be like, that makes sense, that makes sense. This is, by the way, as a warning, no one should give you so many details on the exact particulars of the second coming or the final coming of Christ. We don't know all those particulars. We know he's coming. We know he's coming bodily. We know he's coming for judgment. We know it's coming to create the new heavens and new earth. We know these things, but the specifics of it, if anyone is that particular, you might Give them a pause. We don't have the exact box top yet for that. We just know the marrow of what is true and what is coming. Now, back to the passage before us. You have God protecting Joseph by calling him back to Israel and keeping him in Galilee. Uh, this is something Jesus spoke of often, this protection, this hand of God, these warnings. He says in Matthew 10, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, in that light... He says, be wise as serpents. Don't be, don't be foolish about this. Know this is the case. You, you are among wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as, as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and such. He tells straightforwardly what to expect to his disciples. Verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So here today, finishing chapter 2 of Matthew, we have established the backdrop for Jesus' earthly ministry, his public ministry that will soon come to light as we move through Matthew. We see, though, now that the kingdom of heaven, with Jesus himself, has interrupted the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world, and Herod's representative of this. In his response, we should gather why there's such a stir-up. The reality of hatred towards Christ must be understood by his people. Proclaiming Christ will stir up opposition. Living for Christ will agitate the enemies of God to rise against. This is nothing new. The psalmist in Psalm 2, in a prophetic psalm, written a thousand years before Jesus. In Psalm 2, the writer says, Why do the nations rage? They were raging a thousand years before Christ even. In all the peoples, why do they plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and set themselves against God. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They say, 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. We don't want their God. We don't want what he has. We want our kingdom. We have to be aware of the reality of hatred towards Christ. It's always been this way. It just, in this redemptive hotspot, becomes even more obvious when he comes, when he's born. But we should also be very sure of this, that God has his sure hand upon his people. Psalm 2 also describes this in prophecy. It says in Psalm, four, Psalm 2, verse 4, And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, the kings of this earth. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God's describing his appointing of Christ as the king of all, thi- of, all, of all. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. This is God the Father talking to God the Son. And the ends of the earth will be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. A description of total domination that the king of heaven will exact. So then he says, turns to the kingdoms of earth, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him, in King Jesus. So when King Jesus comes, it's for all of us to assess there are Two kingdoms to be concerned with. Whose kingdom are you part of? What king do you bow to? What king should have dominion? Christ. This is why Revelation, when capturing it all, says in Revelation 11, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And... He shall reign forever. It will never be said of Jesus what was said of Herod, and Herod died. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, this is a shocking attempt to snuff out Christ, and it forces us to acknowledge the clash of kingdoms that has persisted since you put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman for our sake where we have become complacent or forgetful about the reality of opposition towards Christ and his people. Please awaken us and enliven in us a fresh sense of call to put on the full armor of God. Assure us by the words that Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, opposition is daunting for sure. But your promises and your provisions in Christ give us great hope and courage. What in light of all these things shall we say? If you are for us, who can be against us? We pray this trusting in Christ our King. Amen.